Business has always been about turning a profit, making money. But can it stand for something more? Something beyond dollars and cents? We think so. We think that today, business has a higher calling, a purpose to be fair and just, to do right by their workers, customers, communities, and the environment. And it turns out companies successful doing that also do better for their bottom line. When you see the Just Capital seal, it means this company is a force for good. Visit JustCapital.com to learn more. Hi there, and good evening. Welcome to the Jim Bohannon Show from Westwood One Radio. We're at one 560 jimbo one 560 Online, find us at jimbohannonshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Jimbo Talks. Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and... Uh, a head of state for a number of countries, passed away this past day at the age of 96. Seventy of those 96 years she spent as, in fact, the monarch, the longest-serving British monarch in history. We'll be talking about that in the first portion of the program tonight. A a person who certainly uh, has uh, been a steadying rock of Western civilization. And... uh, we will uh, take your calls at one eight six six five zero Jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six. We'll lead off with Mary Jordan, who was the uh, former London bureau chief of the Washington Post. Uh, good evening, Mary. Good evening. Nice to talk to you. It's a big day. Yes, it certainly is. It's the the sort of thing where you 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 watch the uh, the calendar flip by in the years ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, and you realize that she is, after all mortal, and yet somehow, even at age 96, it's kind of hard to believe that she is gone and that Prince Charles is now King Charles III, that uh, it, it, it hasn't really sunk in to me yet. I think when you start hearing, instead of the national anthem, uh, God Save the Queen, when now it's all of a sudden, God Save the King, I think when people keep hearing that and they and they see him, he's going to address the, the nation and the world really tomorrow, and then he's going to start going around the country. This is a long planned transition. He's been waiting a long time. She became the monarch at 25. He becomes the monarch at 73 years old. Indeed, that's uh, that's true. His reign will not be certainly nearly as uh, as long as uh, as was his uh, his mother's. Uh, you look back, uh, I suppose that uh, young people, school children in Britain, and uh, perhaps uh, school children in this country to a lesser extent, uh, first become aware of uh, of things like uh, world leaders, oh, at maybe age six. And so uh, that that means that uh, I suppose that the, uh, the, the youngest you could be probably would be uh, uh, 76 years of age probably, uh, and even begin to uh, remember an era before Elizabeth II was, in fact, on the throne. I mean, the the overwhelming majority of the world has only known one British monarch. That's stunning. I mean, she outlasted seven popes, and they hang in there a long time, typically. <laughs> you know, there's a, 
a rapid turnover in prime ministers and presidents, but she's even outlasted seven popes. So it's yes. really quite uh, amazing. And uh, I, th- I think, you know, seems like everybody knows her, and yet she never wrote a book. She never really gave a telling speech. And maybe that was her secret to everybody, well, so many people liking her. Yeah, uh, very, very possibly. I mean, if you uh, if you go back to the time, uh, 1952, she's 26. She uh, takes the throne upon the death of her father. And uh, I, I gather there was a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of questions asked at the time. Is she up to it? Uh, she, she's only 26 years of age. And, of course, uh, it usually wasn't said uh, uh, outright, uh, forthrightly. But And she's only a girl. Uh, I mean, there was still a certain amount of, uh, of that attitude uh, prevalent in 1952, wasn't there? Well, and she had it herself. Um, she would probably be the first to say that she had doubts whether she could do it. She always was saying, you know, I didn't really have the education that I should have for this. Um, And I think part of that was uh, endearing to people, too, that she did did the work. Uh, She always was worried. She felt the duty. But she never felt like she was elitist, which is a remarkable thing to say for someone who lived in Buckingham Palace and was the queen. Um, But I think her own doubts about it, and absolutely there was questioning about whether this this young girl, um, you know, this woman uh, could really bring the country together. And she did. And I think that that more than a few people uh, at the the time uh, recall the fact that this princess, this uh, uh, child of of the most pampered possible upbringing uh, in World War II, with Britain with its back to the wall, volunteered to serve in the military. And it wasn't just in some honorary or ceremonial position. She was a mechanic on trucks. She got grease under her fingernails. I think that probably endeared her to a lot of people. Oh, and, and it was so important. And she drove, you know, they often say when I was living in London, um, that she's the only one allowed to drive without a driver's license. <laughs> but she actually did drive, and she didn't have a driver's license. Uh, and But, you know, the idea that she could go up to Balmoral, the Scottish castle that she liked, and get in her Land Rover and drive around was a moment of freedom, um, and she loved it. And, and when it would break down occasionally, as would happen sometimes, uh, she would <laughs> right. she would get out, open the hood, and fix the darn thing. So, Pretty I mean, impressive. I mean, she did like uh, that kind of to do the dishes, to open the lid of the car. Um, I mean, that was her kind of way of saying, you know, I've got a crown and I have a whole bunch of castles, but I'm just like a mom. I'm just a family person and I'm doing my best, but I'm kind of like all of you people. Yeah. Uh, to uh, to what extent would you say that uh, that, that she uh, was uh, otherwise not terribly prepared for uh, the monarchy? I mean, uh, she was clearly next in line, at least after the uh, 
the uh, change in uh, the uh, the kings back in the 30s. She was next in line. Uh, was any effort made that we know of to uh, give her a crash course in, uh, in things such as she uh, asked for diplomacy? It. Yes. She certainly asked for it. She asked people to come in. Um, I mean, she was homeschooled, and she she did listen to. She had, of course, um, even asked prime ministers. She, she would meet with them, and, and she had a back and forth with them. Some she liked better than others. Um, but she was a good student, and she took um, she read. A lot of people wrote to her, and she and she read them these letters. Um, but she also was definitely tutored, and she would not be one of those people if there was a state dinner somewhere that would two minutes before, uh, okay, who are we meeting? You know, she did homework. And yeah. she had a special thing for the United States. Uh, in 2007, um, she was coming to the United States, to Jamestown, um, the old British colony where, you know, in 1607, the, the Brits came and settled in the new world right here in the States. And it was a huge deal. And so, I happened to be over there for the Washington Post. I was there for several years, and I got invited to Buckingham Palace to, to meet her on the occasion when she was heading to the United States. And she really read everything about the States. She was fascinated, and I noticed for a fact that even recently she was asking her own diplomats. She'd call on the phone and say, what's going on in Congress what is going on over there with this election stuff between Biden and Trump? She did did her homework, and I think she was particularly fascinated about the United States. Mary Jordan, the former London bureau chief for The Washington Post. Thank you for being with us tonight, Mary. We appreciate that very much. And we'll continue coverage as a look back on the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away this past day at the age of 96. one 866 jimbo and we'll be back in just a moment. There are uh, a number of humorous stories to go with the uh, sadness of the moment, the mourning that is uh, taking place. We thought we would talk a bit more about the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II, and uh, do so right now in the company of Bruce Gilley, professor of political science at Portland State University and author of The Last Imperialists, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire, which is uh, published by Regnery Gateway. Uh, uh, good evening, uh, uh, Professor Gilley. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Jim. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, first, let's get a, a, just a, a basic, for those who have missed the details of it all, let's listen to this report from correspondent Charles de Ledesma. We uh, do know that this coming day, Friday, which of course will be getting underway actually in uh, London, five hours uh, ahead of the United States, so it's, uh, as we speak live, about uh, 3 a.m. in Britain. It won't be long before the uh, official ceremonies uh, making uh, uh, Prince Charles, uh, King Charles III, will be taking place. And uh, although technically he became king upon the death of his mother, but uh, there is a formal ceremony, and uh, that will uh, proceed this uh, coming day, Friday. Now, uh, Professor uh, Gilly, you, since you have written The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire, I note that, at least from what I've read, that Queen Elizabeth uh, used her uh, influence at least in part, to help uh, dissolve uh, 
the British Empire, that is to say, to bring freedom to any number of uh, colonial territories. Uh, your thoughts about that in the, the context of, uh, oh, the importance of the British Empire, uh, good and bad. Yes, yeah, she was um, obviously a, a big fan of the British Empire. She was certainly not a, a, an anti-colonialist or an empire hater, but she also understood when she came to power in 1952 that uh, as the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan said, uh, there was a wind of change sweeping through the world, through Africa and where most of the colonies were. And she uh, she stepped into that role. I mean, one of the first things she did uh, is take a, a six-month tour around the world, 53-54, um, visiting the colonies. The first time ever that the, the annual uh, Christmas speech from the throne was actually given from, uh, from New Zealand, from outside of Britain, when she was on tour there. And through Africa. She was amazingly popular, um, especially in Africa, in Uganda, in Nigeria, in Ghana. Um, and she saw her role as managing this transition from uh, empire to uh, what became the British Commonwealth, essentially the association of countries that used to be British colonies. Some of them retained the British monarchy as the head of state. Some of them, like India, did not, but they all remained in the Commonwealth. And she sort of saw this idea that that this tremendous goodwill towards the British legacy uh, was something that could be retained even as these countries became independent. And uh, and she loved that role. Um, and she not only loved that role, but they loved her too. I mean, she was uh, <laughs> she was she was like a rock star when she visited these countries um, because they, they understood uh, how much they had benefited from being British colonies. And uh, we'll be taking a few phone calls for this guest and a succeeding guest here in in just a moment. There's always a fine line between power and influence. If I'm not mistaken, this is one of these little bits of trivia that uh, stick in my mind like Velcro. Uh, but I believe the last British monarch who overruled an act of parliament, that happened in 1707. That for some reason sticks in my brain, which is to say over 300 years ago. And uh, since that time, uh, the exact role of the monarchy has always been in sort of a, to, at least to, to Americans who have this written constitution, sort of a gray area. Uh, and certainly the queen has influence, but uh, uh, but not necessarily uh, all that much power. Uh, your thoughts on, on just exactly uh, what uh, authority the queen had and whether or not that will automatically devolve on uh, the new king? Yeah, it's it's true that actual acts of intervention in politics declined very precipitously from the you know late 17th century, the Glorious Revolution of 1688 onwards. Um, but I think the, the king and the and the queen Victoria obviously had a, a certain influence, ability to talk to ministers. And then by the time Queen Elizabeth came to power in 52, it was a uh, it was a role that had shifted to uh, you know what the founder of the Economist magazine, Walter Bejot, called the, the dignified part of the Constitution. He, he made a distinction between the dignified part of the Constitution and the you know the functional part of the Constitution, the part that actually works day to day. And the, the dignified part was the part that helps people to to retain a kind of allegiance to the Constitution by making people appreciate its history. Uh, its lineage by under, making people appreciate its importance, uh, uh, taking pride in it. Um, you know, these functions, uh, we may say, oh, that's, that's not important. It's just, you know, who gets to veto who and who gets to vote in what committees. But, uh, but you know, the dignified part of the Constitution was really critical to, to, to national pride, 
to uh, people playing fair in politics because they respected the rules of the game they were operating under. And uh, and I think Queen Elizabeth, you know, uh, carried out that role amazingly. She uh, single-handedly, at a time when Britain was a declining international power, let's not forget, I mean, her reign essentially coincides with the decline of Britain as a, as a global power. Yeah. And yet, uh, in, a, in a country going through such a such a transition, uh, you know, you won't find a country that is more patriotic and more committed to its institutions. And I think Queen Elizabeth deserves a lot of the credit for that. Yeah. Uh, very briefly, uh, they don't have a written constitution as such. Right. They? they have uh, they, they have uh, patent law, what they call patent laws, essentially how the parliament operates. Um, and they have obviously okay. the common law as we uh, borrowed from them and, c- and carried on. And they do have a Bill of Rights, which sits uneasily with their parliamentary sovereignty. But, uh, no, they've always operated uh, based on precedent and based on tradition. And uh, especially in a system like that, yeah. the person who symbolizes that tradition is very important. Exactly. All right. Thank you very, very much for being with us, Professor Bruce Gilley, who teaches political science at uh, Portland State University. And uh, we'll be back with more, including calls in a moment. Uh, We will be speaking in this portion of the program with Lauren Conlon, host of the Lauren Interviews and uh, commentator. Let's start with a call from uh, Liza in Palo Alto, California. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. Bohannon. Boy, that was a treat, just just a humanizer. That was so much fun just imagining the humor between President Reagan and Queen Elizabeth dancing to Lady and the Tramp. That was wonderful. Um, I had a comment. It, it kind of referred to your very first guest. She was talking, as were you, talking about the fact that, you know, she knew how to fix a car and she was kind of very humble, you know, despite her incredible um, upbringing and where and she was, you know, a princess. But I wanted to just give a, a little, um, I, don't, I, I don't exactly know what the status of the, of the family's feelings was, but it, I knew someone who was in England. He, he was, his sister ran a little millinery shop where apparently the queen bought all her custom-made hats, or a lot of them, over the years. And apparently she was incredibly devout uh, Catholic, and she said once that uh, she the, took... Well, the queen, was, the queen was, of course, the head of the Church of England, Right and 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 yeah. yes exactly and and she said that she took her relationship with God above uh, you know her throne and England and I think that probably but she was particularly of course she was the head of the church but her faith was so and I think that probably gave her a, a humbling feel I mean she she sensed that she was no better because in the eyes of God we're all the same so I think that allowed yeah. her to not only be very appealing but you get what I'm saying I think she. Yes. She tells, oh, I'm the queen, but I'm a child of God. And, you know, that's why she... I think that there's much truth probably in what you say. Uh, Lauren Conlon, your thoughts. Hi. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You know, I am just... (laughs) I I was not expecting this today, to say the least. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking of, of the UK right now as they just go through this crazy time of transition, you know? I mean... I don't want to harp on the timing too much, but, you know, the timing is not great with a new prime minister. And I just, you know, I just feel like things are about to get very, very hectic. <laughs> well, certainly uh, it, it, uh, it is a period of some uh, some turbulence uh, mm. without without question, uh, including, of course, uh, uh, the presence of, uh, of Prince Harry, but not uh, Meghan at the Queen's uh, oh, bedside. Man. Yes. So that uh, was... 
shocking yeah. to me. Well, you know what, Jim? I guess not so shocking considering the tumultuous relationship that Meghan Markle had with Queen Elizabeth. But, you know, I'm thinking to myself, Prince Harry maybe should have requested that Meghan stand by his side. What do you think? Uh, personally, I think it was a wise decision to keep her away. This uh, The Queen at the time was uh, presumably uh, uh, struggling on her, her potential deathbed. I think keeping uh, Meghan Markle out of the room was a very <laughs> compassionate thing to do. Here's a call from Joel in the Johnson City, Tennessee. Good evening, Joel. Well, good evening. I have nothing profound to add, but being 77 years old, and having had a uh, Admiral 10-inch television in the Bronx, we were the second person, uh, second family on the block to have one. Uh, 1952, and I remember it, um, uh, Edmund Hillary was about to uh, break the one-minute mile a little bit later. And Ed, uh, well, well, Edmund Hillary was the guy who climbed Mount Everest. Climbed Mount Everest. Right. Mount, Mount Everest. And Edmund Hillary was about, and uh, Bannister was about to break the one-minute Mile, the, the four-minute mile. Yes, exactly. Four-minute right. mile. Yeah. Yes. Um, excuse me. Uh, it is late for me. <laughs> anyway. Of course. Uh, and Gorgeous George was the wrestler on television. Right. That's yes, about indeed. all you could get. When right. the coronation occurred that same year, Christine Jorgensen returned from I think Sweden or whatever to the first uh, sex change operation. Uh-huh. But nothing on television came close to the coronation. I believe it was the first international uh, broadcast. And it, it might well have been. Certainly, television was very early, obviously, and, uh, and it, uh, it, it, it very probably was. I would imagine. Yeah, it was an astounding event, even on a ten-inch yes. television. Everybody yes. just huddled around, and there we were suddenly in England. So um, she came in with a bang across the airwaves, and it was quite something. And, uh, yes. It's just fascinating. I remember back, and now she's dead. And, of course, I remember when she was uh, carn- the coronation. Anyway, I oh, just yes. thought I'd add that. Times have changed, and she went in, you know, that many years. What is it, almost 70 years or something? Well, 70 years that she was on the throne. That is correct. A little over 70, as a matter of fact. So, uh, uh, yes, uh, you do put things in perspective, uh, Joel. Uh, Sharon in Crane, Missouri, good evening. Good evening, Ken. Um, Queen Elizabeth came in to uh, her duties at a time when Great Britain had not recovered from World War II yet. A lot of people think the war was over and everything was hunky-dory in Great Britain, and it wasn't. The people were, uh, they had a lot of trouble eating Uh, because everything was in short supply. The country was trying to recover from the devastation of the war. She lost her father that she adored. And she took her duty with great seriousness. Mm -hmm. And she realized how much she meant to the people as a sense of continuity. There's a thousand years of history behind her, and she took all of that extremely seriously. When you stop and think that she was Queen of England for a third 
of the time that our country has been in existence. It makes things a little bit clearer. She brought Ireland into Great Britain. They didn't, you know, they had a lot of problems in Great Britain um, Mm. with people of other countries who wanted to be other countries. She Mm. forgave Ireland for the death of Lord Mountbatten that she was very close to, that she loved greatly, Mm. her family member. She was a lady of great character. Yes, I would agree. She was. She was a lady who loved her people. Yes. They're lucky. Your thoughts, uh, Lauren Conlon? No, I agree. I agree with everything. Um, You know, she was a wonderful, wonderful leader. I do feel like everybody really looked up to her, really respected her. You know, and and I think I don't. You can correct me if I'm wrong. She was the the longest uh, reigning monarch, right? Seventy years. That was the longest. She was the longest ever. reigning British monarch. I think one other monarch somewhere uh, reigned longer, but she was the longest reigning British monarch. Yes, ever. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Um. And now I think it was Duchess Sarah, Aunt Prince Andrew's ex-wife, that actually took to Twitter today to make a statement just saying, you know, how fair the queen was, even after she divorced Prince Andrew, how amazingly kind Queen Elizabeth was to her. And I think that just says a lot right there. Right. We will pause and we'll be back with more in a moment. as we mourn, we must come together as a people to support him, to help him bear the awesome responsibility that he now carries for us all. We offer him our loyalty and devotion, just as his mother devoted so much to so many for so long. And with the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country exactly as Her Majesty would have wished, by saying the words, God save the King. The new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss. one 866 jimbo as we speak with uh, uh, Lauren Conlon, the host of the Lauren Interviews, a commentator, and uh, Steve in Atlanta. Hello, Steve. Hey, hey guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, it's it's Miss Conlon, right? Or Mr. What? It's, 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 well, whatever, Ms., whatever, Lauren, Lauren is, is her, her first name. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, so, um, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, was a, I want to ask you, both of you, a question. I'd like both of you to do a pine. Okay, fine. All not right, just, fine. Not just one of you. Okay, uh, fine. Uh, first question is, do you think the monarchy should continue? Second question is... Um, what were her accomplishments? The third question is... Well, gee, um, we, how we much might as well start taking US... some notes here, I suppose. Uh, if you don't mind. The third question oh, is, how much of U.S. debt does the uh, Crown own? Well, I have no idea would be the answer to that, and I, really I doubt that our... I mean, I, you know, I can start... 
um, just by talking about some of the the things that Queen Elizabeth has has done. I mean, I think she was incredibly important to so many people. And I think I don't remember the woman that called before, but just saying in general, just how much her coronation meant to everybody and how much, you know, how many people watched that in general just showed how much she was loved. But um, no, I think her first, her first state visit to Germany in uh, 1965, it marked the 20 year anniversary of the end of World War II. You know, it symbolized reconciliation and it was really important uh, to a lot of people. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the best place to be, even though the war was over and she still went there uh, and she, you know, still, she still spoke and she still supported them. So I think that was, that was huge. Uh, she used her considerable influence to help bring uh, freedom to the vast bulk of the British empire. Uh, she uh, was instrumental in ending British colonialism. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of thought that was uh, pretty good. And yeah, uh, also, really I, I would I would add as well, uh, uh, Steve. First of all, I have no idea how much of uh, of U.S. Uh, debt that uh, Britain has. Uh, you know, if I had that off the top of my head, you'd have to wonder what I spend my time doing, uh, reading encyclopedias. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I uh, uh, can tell you that the monarchy, I think, is important. For a nation uh, which is no longer uh, quite as uh, uh, as uh, monolithic in population as it once was, this is a nation that has been flooded, quite frankly, with people from cultures that uh, are not uh, particularly uh, uh, entwined in the notion of majority rule and the concept of, uh, of uh, human rights. Uh, so I think the monarchy uh, does bring a certain importance uh, as a unifying factor in a nation that is being pulled in, in a number of directions right now. Uh, anything you want to uh, add to that, uh, uh, no, I, Lauren? I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I don't. I don't. Truthfully, I don't know as as much about their government as you do. So, um, you know, I think that surface level, I agree with that. All right. More to come. Back in a moment. She has been our longest ever reigning monarch. It's an extraordinary achievement to have presided with such dignity and grace for 70 years. Her, her life of service stretched beyond most of our living memories. In return, she was loved and admired by the people in the United Kingdom and all around the world. And that is the new Prime Minister of Britain, Liz Truss. By the way, for the preceding caller, uh, I looked it up. Of uh, foreign-owned U.S. debt, Japan owns 17% of it, China uh, 14%, the United Kingdom 9%. So uh, now we all know. All right. Uh, Jerry in Williams, Iowa. Hello. Uh, Jim, I'm still glad you're back. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I, have a, I have a comment uh, for response. Uh, uh, please be patient with me. My, my sympathies and prayers of comfort to our uh, British friends at the loss of their uh, Western Civ Christian monarch. I mean, she she, she was that for sure. Um, at the same time, I talked with a British expatriate today um, who told me that he's not, that monarchy is really not all 
what it's cracked up to be. Um, I, I personally recall for decades that the monarchy and, and Maggie Thatcher, too, uh, condemned communism a lot, while at the same time uh, turning a blind eye to uh, progressive and developing uh, British socialism. So, um, well, first of all, uh, uh, first of all, socialism and communism are not the same thing, despite a number of people out there who seem to think they are. Socialism is a really stupid way to run an economy. Communism uh, is uh, a system that involves uh, the worst elements of fascism. I don't think you will find any gulags, for example, in Sweden. Having noted that, I'm not sure, uh, uh, Lauren Conlon, that... Uh, uh, although Maggie Thatcher certainly has had uh, bad things to say about uh, both uh, socialism and communism. And in fact, Maggie Thatcher did help turn around the British trend in that direction. I don't recall the Queen having great many uh, things to say regarding uh, the whole concept of uh, of uh, political philosophies. Do you? I I don't either. I don't think, um, no, I don't think she she really spoke much about that. You're correct. Yeah, she she spoke more, I think, in general terms, uh, uh, Jerry. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, do we have – let me ask a question that I think is implied in what uh, Jerry was calling about. Uh, do we obsess too much about the British monarchy? I mean, there have been other uh, world leaders who have passed away in the last uh, 20 years, and we certainly haven't uh, devoted this much time uh, uh, to them. Is, uh, is mm-hmm. that uh, unhealthy in your view, Lauren? Oh, in my view? Yes. I mean, no, Jim, it's like, I, I think she, this, if we're going to put attention towards a public figure, and I feel like that's not even, you know, doing her justice, obviously, she was a queen, but I feel like this is the right person to obsess over. It drives me crazy that people obsess over AOC and put her on the cover of GQ, and, you know, I'm like, see, I don't, people don't even know who their congressperson is half the time, and so it's, I think that, yes. I think this is okay. This is completely okay to yeah. take a day, take a week, and just really mourn the queen. Exactly. Got about a minute, Mark, in Eureka, California. What do you have to say? Hi, uh, Ms. Conlon. Uh, did you interview the queen? Or Sorry, I missed the first part of the show. But Oh, no. I. Oh, my goodness. I would, I would wish, but no, I never have interviewed the queen. I don't think she granted a great many interviews, did she? You know, she did not. Um, but it was always my dream to curtsy in front of her, Jim. <laughs> she did not grant <laughs> interviews. I really, I really, really, really wanted a chance to just curtsy. And, you know, it's unfortunate I didn't get that chance, but that's okay. Oh, uh, well, uh, suffice it to say, <laughs> we, uh, we thank you uh, for being uh, with us this evening, uh, Lauren Conlon. And uh, absolutely, Uh, she is a commentator, host of the Lauren Interviews uh, podcast that is uh, produced weekly. And uh, we'll be back uh, with more other topics uh, to come here on uh, the Jim Bohannon Show. And uh, we do come to you weeknights uh, right here at Westwood One. Hi there, and uh, good evening, and welcome to the Jimbo Hannon Show from Westwood One Radio. We're at one 560 jimbo one 
Online, you'll find us at jimbohannonshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Jimbo Talks. And we're talking this evening with uh, Jonathan Hofer, research associate at the Independent Institute, about uh, license plate reading software as in use in California and its impact on civil liberties. Uh, Mr. Hofer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the story of uh, a a California woman, uh, Denise Green, back in uh, 2009. Yeah, back in um, 2009, uh, a woman who was a city bus driver was on her way home uh, from work in the San Francisco area. And uh, during her commute, um, she was pulled over by several San Francisco police officers. And uh, at one point, they they get her out of her vehicle. Uh, They direct her out at gunpoint. They force her to the ground, even though she kind of complained that uh, you know, she wasn't very immobile. She had joint knee problems. Um, after a lengthy detention, uh, they say, hey, sorry, um, we thought you were a car thief. Uh, she was driving a Burgundy Lexus. And in fact, they the police were looking for a gray GMC truck. Now, now and, that's worth repeating for those who weren't paying attention. Oops, we're sorry you're driving a Burgundy Lexus and we were looking for a gray GMC truck. We're sorry? How in the yeah. hell did they? I mean, that's not an easy oops to make. How did they arrive at no. that conclusion? Yeah, so what had happened was that an automated license plate reader notified police on the ground uh, that her car was stolen. However, it actually misread the license plate. Uh, either by one or several characters, and responding officers just straight up failed to perform a manual check and confirm with dispatch that this, in fact, was the car. And the scary thing is that, you know, this isn't really an isolated incident. Uh, There are numerous instances of this happening, and this could really happen to anyone on the road. And one of the things that I tell people is that you know, when we kind of think of mass surveillance, especially post-Edward Snowden leaks, uh, we generally think of things like the CIA and NSA. But in reality, in terms of numbers, the most common surveillance tool in the United States today is actually automated license plate readers. So this is, although the uh, story that you tell is uh, from uh, California, but uh, I would assume that uh, Automated license plate readers are in use in the vast majority of states? Yes, that's correct. So they were initially developed around the 1970s, and they first kind of uh, show up in the United Kingdom. But for the initial decades, they weren't especially practical, and they weren't very advanced. Um, They started popping up internationally for things like traffic control or traffic monitoring. Sometimes they're used for electronic uh, toll collection or parking enforcement. But roughly in the early 2000s, they started popping up in the United States. And in recent years, they've really just exploded in popularity with American law enforcement, um, in particular in California, um, Los Angeles especially. Although you find this elsewhere throughout the nation, um, a few years ago, it's really only Los Angeles, New York City, and a few California Bay Area cities. But 
now uh, they're popping up all over the nation. And if your town doesn't have one, it's probably soon coming to a place near you. Now, how uh, well known would you say it is among law enforcement officers that their little automated license plate reader is far from perfect? Would you consider that to be well known? Because if I were a cop, um, yeah. I, I would think twice. You know, the, the uh, automatic uh, license plate reader says that there's a crook in front of us. I'd do some double checking before I go slamming people onto the ground if my experience tells me that this thing doesn't always work right. Right, exactly. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, you know, the chief concern with ALPRs, as they're referred to, is really their accuracy. Um, and well, maybe they're not ready to be yeah. used. Yeah. I mean, maybe if, they, if they're not accurate, yeah. call us when they are, would be my exactly. response. Uh, so one of the largest uh, ALPR data aggregators out in California, by their own estimation, they say that they misread about uh, one out of every 10 cars, uh, which is a staggering uh, failure rate when you consider that these cameras can scan up to 2,000 plates a minute. Uh, they're usually placed over busy interstates or mounted on a police cruiser. And when you're looking at a high densely uh, populated area, you know, that means that they could mis uh, misidentify, you know, upwards of 200 cars per minute. And that's, um, that is known to police. Uh, it's generally practice, although not always, you know, followed through upon, that officers are supposed to manually confirm the license plate visually once they've initiated a stop. However, that doesn't always uh, occur, and that could be a mix of either, you know, the officer is maybe relying too much on the technology, and it's actually, um, you know, he said he sees that the camera gave him alert, and so he's following through and he just trusts that's working. Or maybe it's actually a pretty good faith exception, and he thinks, well, this is a fleeing suspect. I better stop them now before they get away. Um, however... Well, that's one uh, thing, one, one thing yeah. to pull them over. I mean, you know, fine, it's a fleeing suspect, you, you pull them over. But, uh, again, going much, much beyond that, uh, I thought bureaucrats were, were pretty frightened of lawyers and lawsuits. And, I mean, if this thing's accurate 90 percent of the time again i repeat my previous statement hey great idea call us when it's ready to be put into use i mean yeah i, that's I, all, I don't yeah go well go ahead but i, I that just strikes me as odd that uh, all of a sudden uh, the threat of lawsuits and the like uh, doesn't matter when you have something which is obviously not ready for use as i said great idea call us when you're ready I mean, I, I don't understand. I thought the bureaucrats were, were automatically gun-shy of, uh, of lawsuits. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. I totally agree. I think, I think there's a good reason to be optimistic that there's a potential use for this technology, that it could be a useful crime-fighting tool. But, um, you know, there's not too many safeguards nationally or really anywhere, and the few that exist aren't very robust. Uh, Isn't so there any way really, to, to, to do a backup, a backup check? I mean, uh, like, a, like a manual check? Okay, we, we've just seen a, a license plate, uh, and we're told that it's a fleeing suspect. We pulled them over. They're not going anywhere. Uh, isn't there a way to manually check just to be sure? I mean, I can't believe it would take that much time or that many people necessarily to, uh, at least for, for important cases like a fleeing felon, 
I mean, you know, if if if, if the the thing found somebody who's got uh, three parking tickets they haven't paid, uh, that's one thing entirely. But you, you would only worry about uh, this really if it was a serious uh, a serious incident. I mean, why why can't they just simply check? Uh, this license yeah. plate they gave us was uh, A B C D E F, and we just checked it, and uh, that's the wrong one. I mean. Again, I see the problem you're pointing out. For the life of me, I don't see why it has to exist as a problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, uh, there should be an expectation that uh, officers are manually confirming that they have the correct license plate with the correct make and model of the vehicle. Uh, you know, you kind of bring up another related point is that um, it kind of is influenced by the severity of the crimes that ALPRs are meant to deal with. So police, how they use them generally is that ALPRs are supposed to be a part of the department strategy of dealing with either missing persons, car thefts, or maybe uh, a fleeing felon, such as like a drive-by shooter and so forth. So when a license plate uh, reader alerts an officer to a car, generally the procedure is that police are to treat it with what's called a felony or high-risk stop. And that means police are to respond with their gun bet ready because the presumption is that the officers are dealing with a known or suspected felon who could be armed and dangerous. Well, now, um, what are these things, what are these yeah. uh, automated license plate readers set to pick up? I, w- I would assume that that my example of uh, of three outstanding parking tickets. I mean, it wouldn't. You'd be doing nothing but pulling over cars all day. Uh, right. I, my 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 assumption is that uh, they're set uh, only uh, to uh, uh, signal the officers when a a a serious felon is involved. Uh, it, would that be a, a correct assumption that uh, that, yeah. that these things only aim for really serious criminals? That's uh, correct. Um, Some cities do use it for just uh, minor parking enforcement, but generally the trend is to use it for uh, suspected felonies, chiefly uh, stolen vehicles. Um, But that also is a major concern when you think about, you know, what kind of records these systems are relying upon. Are the records up to date? Are they accurate? Um, because like the case in San Francisco with Denise Green, who was pulled over and her make and model didn't even match, we have other instances where, um, you know, cars simply shouldn't have been on what's called a hot list, which is a list of cars that are of an especial concern to law enforcement. Um, and that could be a transcription error, either an officer or a dispatch, um, you know, typed in uh, a license plate incorrectly. It could be purely bad faith that someone um, reported a car stolen incorrectly. We have an example of that. Um, it could just simply be the technology failing and you know misidentifying a license plate. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that this can go wrong. Yeah. Well, well again, I mean, uh, we'll come back. We'll talk some more and take calls at one eight six six five zero Jimbo, one eight six six five zero five four six two six. But again. Boy, this just strikes me as a heck of a good idea. And again, call us when you've got it working. Uh, I'm I'm at a loss as to why this would be rushed into use and just invite trouble. But uh, we'll be back with more on The Jimbo Hannon Show in just a moment. 
Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannon Show at one 560 jimbo one 560 with Jonathan Hofer, research associate at the Independent Institute, who's been looking into these faulty uh, automated license plate readers, as at least as used in California. And uh, it sounds like they're not ready for use yet, although I certainly can see how this would be a good idea when it's ready to be applied. Paul calls in from uh, mid-Illinois. Hello. Hello, Jimbo. Um, Now that I'm catching up, I I missed the first three minutes. Uh And I thought this was about police overstepping and uh, defunding the police and that kind of stuff. But, well, let me let me simply bring you up to date on what it's about. It is about these automatic, uh, automated license plate readers in use in California, and the fact that uh, sometimes they alert police to pull over the wrong person. It's about technology that is not quite perfected. But uh, anyway, now that you're up to speed, what are your thoughts? Okay, so it notifies police to do something to take action right the the, so, the, 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 the this vehicle is uh, uh, a vehicle that's uh, reported stolen or or uh, I, it I is heard, believed I that the, the yeah it's believed that the uh, the driver is a felon what have you yes okay I heard you say it was a maroon sedan uh, but the police were looking for a gray you know SUV or something something like that. Yeah. There was no and, and no how, possible comparison, but the they were going by the license plate, which was misread by the automated license plate reader. Right, and how preposterous! Now, you, now, well, it does it does I, seem I, I, preposterous. I would agree. This is Paul. Normally, I call in. I live in Lansing, Michigan. Okay, I'm Paul from Lansing, Michigan. And uh-huh. I'm on the road. I went to Omaha, and I'm back, you know, halfway back home in okay. Illinois. Illinois, uh-huh. by the way, you know, right. bad place, bad lands. Anyway, uh, so tomorrow I'm going to be driving up to Chicago and uh-huh. then on down around the Lake Michigan back to Lansing. And uh-huh. I'm going to be on, um, what do you call, um, the where they charge you, uh, what are they, tollways. Okay, tollways, all right. The signs signs say, you know, like, if you've got the electronic device on your car, go on this lane, and otherwise you can pay online. Right. I never pay attention to it. I just drive on through. I assume they're reading my license plate, and I'm in a company car, so they'll okay. be charging my company for the toll. Uh-huh. I've never heard any. I've never heard a word either way about well, it. In the, well, then the, let's the, ask our guest about that. Is the technology used in tollway uh, license plate identification similar to this uh, technology that you're talking about, Jonathan Hofer? Yes. Uh, so automated license plate reader technology is generally used for electronic toll billing. Um, however. Toll billing is usually done in a separate system that's not interconnected with other departments or agencies. So 
So sometimes that's maintained by either the state Department of Transportation right. or maybe some special district within uh, the state. Um, right. But it's the same basic process, data, yeah. is it not? Uh, an automatic device reads the license plate. In other words, in that regard, the technology between uh, tollways and uh, uh, these uh, searching for felons uh, uh, programs uh, that are used in many states, it sounds like the same basic technology. Uh, camera takes picture of license plate, license plate checked with database, database tells you uh, whatever it is you need to know. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, so, so Paul, uh, presumably, uh, let me ask you this, are you aware... I mean, states uh, hate to lose revenue. If these things were, let's say they were in use uh, in, uh, in Illinois there, uh, and that, uh, that the state was missing uh, 10% of its total revenue because of faulty reading of license plates, I'll guarantee you that they would do something about that. Would you not agree, uh, Jonathan? Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, you know also our misbilling could be a, another potential problem. You're actually identifying the wrong car that's passing through. Um, I do have some concern in terms of just civil liberties on uh, how uh, tolls are being logged and if they're keeping a record of who's passing by and you know how long that data is being kept because. Uh, you can uh -huh. learn a lot from people's travel patterns, and that would be a large uh, privacy concern, I, I reckon. All right, we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, even if the system works well, are there things about it that we should be wary of? A very interesting point from uh, Jonathan Hofer, research associate at the Independent Institute. And again, faulty license plate reading software in use uh, around the country. Sometimes it may be used in terms of... Uh, uh, paying tolls. At uh, other times, it may be in use for uh, finding uh, lawbreakers on the road. But uh, that's, of course, so far we've been talking about the the uh, system not working well, which can be a problem, as we've uh, certainly outlined. Let's say it works quite fine. Therefore, should we just forget about it? Perhaps not. We'll ask Jonathan Hofer about that when you come back with more on the Jim Bohannon Show in a moment. Welcome back to the Jim Bohannon Show at one 866 jimbo with our guest Jonathan Hofer. Research Associate at the Independent Institute. They're online, by the way, at independent.org. What exactly is the Independent Institute? Uh, the Independent Institute is a public policy think tank located in Oakland, California. It was initially founded by David Thoreau, and it's generally a classical liberal, conservative, libertarian-oriented uh, think tank that emphasizes uh, free markets and free people. Okay, very good. Now to uh, Al in Dothan, Alabama. Good evening. Hi, how you doing, uh, Jim? Uh, uh, Fine. I love listening to your show. It, I appreciate it uh, for answering the call. I, I, Thank you. My biggest issue probably is with the police officer who pulled the individual over. They have qualified immunity, so they have the ability to to take away your violation of civil rights 
you know, and, and not do their due diligence and and actually make. Well, you can get you can get in trouble if you violate too many civil rights. They don't have a a, a, a free pass. Well, I would agree with you, but what what does it take for me to to go and sue the the police department? A lot. That's a lot of money. Well, I mean, it may or it may not be. I mean, I, again, I've uh, I've never sued the police, but uh, uh, it uh, it may cost you some money. Although, uh, again, I guess it it depends on uh, maybe you could get someone like the American Civil Liberties Union to uh, to pick up the case uh, for you. In which case, you wouldn't be paying for it. But in any event. Uh, it, there are there are methods of redress if in fact you think your rights have been violated. They aren't all cheap. All right, uh Jonathan, let's talk a bit about uh uh the problems of such technology if they work perfectly. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, clearly this is a collection of data on travel patterns and the like. Uh, uh, Jim takes uh, Interstate uh, 24 uh, every morning at uh, 7.45 a.m. I mean, there are things that can be learned about you that, uh, uh, again, you you may have to use your imagination as to just how it can be abused. But the point is, when in doubt, the state shouldn't be just collecting random information about people. Absolutely. Um, I kind of take the stance that uh, if someone's not of criminal wrongdoing, the government doesn't really have a well, uh, good faith uh, excuse to actively track people. You know, these cameras are not simply just reading and retaining the numbers and letters of a license plate. Uh, When cars approach these cameras, the license plate reader uh, also applies a timestamp and also logs the latitude and longitude of the vehicle, and then stores that information in the database. Now, these databases vary, um, you know, by jurisdiction for how long they keep the data. But for example, in Los Angeles, uh, police keep the data for a minimum of five years. And in those five years, if I have a rap sheet of where your car has been, I have an intimate and detailed portrait of your life that I can know a lot of things about you similar to like you know Snowden used to talk about the metadata of a person's internet search it's a similar idea i know where uh, maybe your place of worship is i know where you live i know where you work i might know which bars you frequent um you know one of the concerning things is that um you know there's a real risk for a chilling effect where People are discouraged from even doing lawful activity because they believe the government is watching them. There's a case back in 2008 where Virginia State Police were um, documenting and recording with their license plate readers all the cars that were traveling to a Sarah Palin rally when she was the running mate of John McCain. Uh, federal agencies have used this to uh, document traffic that goes to gun shows. Uh, federal agencies have done this to, you know, go after people uh, that go to specific places of worship and specific churches. So it's not well, just what you're talking about is yeah. collection of information which is inherently illegal. Uh, do, I wonder does that that occur to these uh, these law enforcement agencies that they could get in a heap of trouble? Uh, yeah. So yeah. I mean, usually, usually bureaucrats are adverse to getting in trouble. Now, maybe if you're a deeply devout opponent of anybody conservative, maybe you're willing to take the risk 
But uh, as a general rule, the the rule of bureaucrats is uh, when in doubt, don't. Right. Yeah, you would think so. And it's kind of interesting, um, the legal environment that these cameras occupy. Um, At present, there's no U.S. Supreme Court that generally address ALPRs. Um, In Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, there's a well-established precedent that things that are in plain view uh, don't have an expectation of privacy. Your license plates are clearly in plain view. It's not illegal to photograph a person's license plate. However, it does become a constitutional question when you start storing and aggregating this data, using it to analyze people's travel. And I think there's a serious case to be made that this is a massive Fourth Amendment violation. Oh, I would agree uh, with and you. I, and, and this five-year thing. Why five years? There's no reason to keep this stuff for five years. If you've, you've noted that on uh, Thursday at uh, 4.13 p.m., a car was stopped because it was assumed there was a felon at the wheel, whether there was or not, well, fine. Okay, you noted it. You logged it. Uh, uh, or uh, John Doe uh, drove his car through a, a given toll booth at uh, 5.18 on uh, Friday, whatever. Uh, maybe a week, five years? What the heck is that all about? Yeah, it's it, it's a excessively high, and I'd even raise the point, uh, storing data for that long is likely unconstitutional. Um, there's an interesting case in 2012. It's United States v. Jones, and uh, Scalita, I believe, wrote the opinion, and that uh, regarded uh, the government's inability to warrantly place a GPS device on a car, and the court unanimously said the, the police are not allowed to uh, trace and track someone's car in real time with a GPS device. Now, license plate readers are not GPS. However, they are an effective substitute for a GPS. They're logging your, you know, coordinates at a specific time. And if you have a series of these cameras, like you do in many California cities that are set up on a single roadway, I can see your travel patterns. I can see the direction you're going. I can deduce your speed. Um, These cameras aren't just, like I said previously, aren't just logging the letters. They're also taking a series of pictures of your car. Uh, The occupants may be identified. Uh, Any conspicuous bumper sticker might be recorded. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, the the number of ways that... uh, that uh, your uh, your rights could be violated. I mean, I I cannot believe this. Uh, this sounds to me like a nine nothing Supreme Court decision. I can't believe that that anybody on the Supreme Court would let this pass. Yeah, and it's even more curious uh, when you consider after Gorsuch replaced uh, Scalia. Uh, there's this really big landmark case in the end of 2017, early 2018, Carpenter Carpenter v. United States. And that case has to do with um, the government retracing someone's steps using cell site data. And you, uh, using, using, the, I'm sorry, using what kind of data? Uh, cell tower data. So, um, oh, oh cell, cell tower. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right. What, what, what cell tower you're near? Okay, gotcha. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So your phone regularly pings with the closest tower, and you can kind of uh, discover where someone's phone is in relation to uh, nearby sure. towers. Yeah. Um, and the court uh, 
says, if you can't retrace a person's step without first obtaining a warrant, uh, you can't even use historical data uh, that's older than 12 days. And so the geolocation of a cell phone, much like an ALPR image, is an extensive log that an observer could use to determine the habits and patterns of travel. Um, so the only cure would be to limit the time that ALPR data can be retained uh, simply to prevent a person's steps or, or prevent retracing a person's steps to create what's essentially a pseudo GPS map. Yes, I, I certainly see your point and we'll come back with more, including phone calls in just a moment. Back to the Jimbo Hannon Show, 1-866-50-JIMBO, 1-866-505-4626. Our guest is Jonathan Hofer, Research Associate with the Independent Institute. As we take a call here, I must ask you, uh, do you have any case ready to go to trial or to court? Because, as I say, uh, this would obviously go to the Supreme Court, and I think it would be a 9 nothing ruling. Uh, seriously, I mean, this is... This is a slam dunk, as far as I can see. I'm not a lawyer, but, but good lord, this, 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 sends uh, tire tracks all over the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the theory I kind of outlined is uh, referred to as mosaic theory in Fourth Amendment legal theory, and that refers to the idea that even if individual data points are legally collected, once you combine them and you get a big picture, at that point, it does trigger a Fourth Amendment search. And lower courts have endorsed this theory. Um, the most recent one that I'm aware of is Commonwealth v. McCarthy, which was the Massachusetts Supreme Court case. And even though they endorsed the theory, they uh, declined to rule in favor of the plaintiff and sided with the state because they held that, you know, the car was only scanned once or there's only one ALPR camera. And so there wasn't enough what scan. is that? What is that? What is that? That could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. What is that? They only violated the Fourth Amendment a little bit. That's not a, a, <laughs> yeah. a legal. That's not a legal theory. I mean, yeah, you'd have so to be to, a, a complete idiot to buy into that. Though, who were these judges, for God's sake? Yeah, and uh, there's, there's also a similar case in the Texas Ninth District. Um, and in these cases, a judge ruled in favor of the police just because they said there wasn't enough scans to be sufficient for Mosaic. But the fact that they endorse this theory means that there's a, there's lakes to this argument, and I think it's credible for the Supreme Court to kind of take up uh, well, this. Well, it sounds like you, maybe you need another case that will go straight to the Supreme Court that uh, that removes the ambiguity. Here's a call from Pat in northern Michigan. Hello, Pat. Hey, Jimbo. I think your screener might have told you my thought process because you pretty well, much whatever the audience hasn't thing. heard it. So why don't you tell all of us? All right, all right. It, it, your one caller that called in earlier about his uh, getting scanned while going through checkpoint Charlie on the toll roads and such. When uh -huh. you slow down to thirty miles an hour, it's pretty easy to take a good scan. But when you're doing sixty-five, you know, or in the fog, it's a little different story. But I live in a rural community. 
And we got, you know, arteries going to all kinds of little different bergs around us. Uh-huh. And about five, seven years ago, I started noticing these gray boxes mounted on the telephone poles, a little bit bigger than the power box on the side of your house. Uh-huh. And I never really took note of them until I was driving along at night, and these damn things got a green eye, green eye on them. Well, that's uh-huh. night vision. These things, they're, they're putting them, they're, they're, they're using them for tracking devices. Well, I, I don't know what these particular boxes may be. Perhaps our guest does. Um, they really come in all shapes and sizes. And one of the scary things is that even regular consumer cameras can actually be retrofitted with the optical character recognition software that's needed to scan the license plates. So uh, many of these things could be, you know, red light cameras that also have ALPR functionality. Uh, so it's very possible that you did stumble upon a license plate reader. All right. More to come and back in a moment. Welcome back to the Jimbo Haddad Show with our guest, Jonathan Hofer, research associate at the Independent Institute. Uh, you are tracking this uh, particular problem. Are you uh, going to court about it, or is anybody going to court about it? I'm just curious as to uh, 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 people who are, are actively trying to stop the practice. Uh, what you're doing is obviously valuable, but are you also uh, engaged in uh, litigation? I personally do not engage in litigation myself. My role is more so uh, looking at the scholarly literature of the matter and doing my own reports and study. What about the Independent um, Institute? Is it uh, engaged in litigation? No, not presently. There there are people who do specialize in this. The most notable one would be the Electronic Frontier Foundation in San Francisco. They actually recently uh, and successfully sued the county of Marin in California. Uh, The sheriff there admitted to not following state law when it comes to uh, protecting license plate reader data and uh they and did anything data. happen to him i mean ordinarily you'd think that if a public official admitted to breaking state law that there would be some kind of uh of penalty forthcoming yeah uh in this case not so much it's uh just uh oops sorry but we agree to uh follow the law okay so uh, nobody uh per se maybe this uh, this one san francisco group but uh uh, somebody needs to pursue this, as I say, and get a nice, clean case with uh, people withstanding and the like. Uh, I mean, at, at some point, it, it needs to reach the Supreme Court, and it, I think it would be a 9 nothing ruling. I mean, not not every judge out there has their head up the back end of their black robe to say, well, it wasn't really a violation of the Fourth Amendment. It was only a little bit of a violation of the Fourth Amendment. I mean... It's hard to believe people with a one-digit IQ are actually sitting on the bench. Yeah, and it's also especially concerning is just how... Um, so these systems use a common pool of data. Usually this is shared, and the rationale is that cars travel into and out of jurisdictions, which makes perfect sense. I could drive from California to New York, and so states in between might have an interest in knowing a stolen car report in California. I get that. But um, a lot of these data sharing arrangements kind of spurt local and state law. 
uh, one of the biggest data sharers in Northern California is this um, what's called a fusion center. It's NICREC, it's Northern California Intelligence Center. And uh, they're organized under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security, and they operate in a no man's land of law. They're not really beholden to local law. Um, individual departments might be sharing uh, their data with jurisdictions that have nothing to do with, like they have no plausible or reasonable expectation of using this data for anything. Uh, one example is Sacramento, California shares data with Honolulu Police Department. And it's like, no one's driving from California to Hawaii no. uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and then I think, you know, there's a real big issue where I think, um, you know, gun control can really come into play here. Yeah. You know, the federal government, uh, you know, and especially a lot of people want to know who's buying guns. And, right. you know, maybe we don't have an explicit gun uh, database, but if I can see that you're going to a gun store and going to the firing range, I can circumvent the law and I can find out who you are. Yeah, I see your point. Here's a call from Charles in Rehoboth, Alabama. Yeah, good evening, Jimbo. Great show. Uh, I went you. to Europe this summer, and I visited a friend in London, and we were I was riding in his car, and we were driving down the road, and I was noticing people speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down, and he pointed out the cameras. So what the cameras do is they use them for, for speed control. And if you exceed, basically there's a camera like every mile or whatever, and then uh, basically the camera calculates your speed, and they just send you a ticket to your home. Uh, now, they don't care if it's you driving the car, your wife, your daughter, your son, or your neighbor. The ticket goes to the car, basically. So it's not about the, the way they look at it is they're not tracking people. They're tracking the car. The ticket goes to the car, kind of an administrative thing, uh, not uh -huh. not a or at least that's or at least that's their uh, I don't want to say excuse, but at least that's their rationale. Uh, yeah. And and of course they don't they, they you know we're talking about Great Britain they don't necessarily have the Fourth Amendment, but uh, no but, they but, don't have one at all. I mean I'm not sure what their laws say, but they do not have a Fourth Amendment per se. Yeah, uh, about uh, 20 seconds worth of thought, uh, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, one of the big things is that research doesn't show that these really have a great benefit in helping law enforcement achieve their goals. Uh, research, I admit, is pretty novel just because of how new the technology is. Maybe academia just hasn't caught up. But so far, there isn't a great body of scholarly literature that shows the benefits outweigh the cost. So All right. I would say... Very uh, good. Uh, stay on the line. We will speak off air. Jonathan Hofer, Research Associate at the Independent Institute, online at independent.org. And I'm Jim Bohannon. This is Westwood One. Hi there and a good evening and welcome to the Jimbo Hanna Show from Westwood One Radio. We're at one 866 jimbo one 866 online. Find us at jimbohannonshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Jimbo Talks. Correspondent Jim Roop looks on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. The official announcement from the 15th Prime Minister under Queen Elizabeth's reign, Liz Truss. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. 
Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. That's no exaggeration, as Elizabeth ascended the throne in 1952 when she was just 25 years old. A reluctant queen at first, but she's always been known for her steadfast dedication to duty. It all began after the death of her father, King George VI, who became king after his older brother abdicated the throne in order to marry a divorced American actress. When King George died, Elizabeth became queen. It, however, was not her first public coming out, if you will. At the age of 14, during World War II, she took to the radio airwaves in 1940 to address her contemporaries, children. And when peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. Because of her father's declining health in the late 1940s, she began to take on official royal duties, and even again taking to the airwaves in 1947 at the age of 21. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. She lived through so much, including scandals, the death of Princess Diana, the marriages of her grandsons, William and Harry, and the death of her husband of 73 years, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and the marking, just seven months ago, of her 70 years on the throne, England's longest reigning monarch. With her death, now Prince Charles becomes King Charles III. It's a day for which Great Britain has long prepared, called Operation London Bridge, which is a what-happens-next plan, which starts with King Charles. The king has issued a statement, and it reads in part, The death of my beloved mother, Her Majesty the Queen, is a moment of the greatest sadness for me and all members of my family. The Prime Minister, in her announcement, spoke of the next phase of the monarchy. And as we mourn, we must come together as a people to support him to help him bear the awesome responsibility that he now carries for us all. We offer him our loyalty and devotion, just as his mother devoted so much to so many for so long. And with the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country, exactly as Her Majesty would have wished, by saying the words, God save the king. Over the next 10 days, there will be a flurry of activity culminating with her funeral at Westminster Abbey. Queen Elizabeth II was 96. I'm Jim Rupp. All right. My guess is you've heard the news by now. Uh, we had a call earlier, somebody wondering if we were uh, obsessing on the queen. She is, after all, not the head of this country. And uh, for that matter, she was not the head of a, a major world power, a secondary world power. I'm sure that a lot of Brits may take umbrage at that, but uh, it's also true. So it's a worthwhile question to ask. I personally believe that she represents dignity and decency and compassion and serves as a role model that would frankly do us all a lot of good. And uh, I think she is good for perhaps the country uh, friendliest to this nation. She serves as uh, she and, and her son now, King Charles III, 
serve as a rallying point in a nation that does not have a written constitution and no longer has the uh, homogeneous population it had at one time. Today, there are a lot of people in Britain who have not grown up in societies that uh, value uh, the rights of uh, the minority, uh, majority rule, uh, a host of, uh, of, quite frankly, civilized virtues. She represented all of that. Despite being a monarch, she represented the finest in the democratic values. All right, one eight six six five zero Jimbo, and we have a call from uh, Dave in Ringe, New New Hampshire. Good evening. Hey, Jim. Hi. You spend a lot of time on your show talking about the excesses of big government, and uh, you're right. You know, the federal government actually has not shrunk once in a hundred years, uh, and everything we do seems to not work. Uh, well, I don't know that everything we do we... does not work, but I mean, let's put it this way. In many cases, what we do gets in the way of things that do work. Perhaps. Yeah. One experiment that's going on. How much do you know about the Free State Project? About the what? The Free State Project. I think you may have brought this up on a previous occasion, in which case, uh, what, uh, somebody in New Hampshire seems to think that uh, uh, 1865 never happened, and you can just simply vote your way out of the union. That that is going on, but I'm talking about something else. The Free State oh. Project is an attempt to get libertarians to move to New Hampshire. We have 20,000 libertarians who oh. pledged to move here, and 5,000 have done so thus far. Well, that's a uh, you know, I mean, uh, I suppose uh, if they're they're concentrated in one state, and it's a state uh, small enough like New Hampshire, they could have some impact at the polls. So, of course, every every libertarian that uh, moves to New Hampshire uh, leaves another part of the country, but uh, what the hey. Yeah, All right. this, is Walter William, this is Walter Williams' idea back in the early 2000s. It's been going on uh-huh. for 20 years. That's, not, that's why it has, took it that long to get to 5,000. But we do hold 40 seats in the legislature, and we have had some other successes um, and we, we downsized the government or helped downsize it by 11 percent in 2011 and 3 percent last year. That's almost unheard of in a U.S. But by, by, by we, you're talking about the uh, state government in New Hampshire? Uh, yes, with free stater support. Uh, OK, I was not aware of uh, such uh, massive uh, drops in, uh, in uh, the size of government in New Hampshire. But uh, OK. Good for you. Uh, You can't report really very many successes anywhere else. No, probably not. Uh, I would dare say there there are a few. There are few and far between. Yeah. Anyway, that's interesting in a state that 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 sometimes elects Democrats to statewide office. Correct. That's because free staters focus on the state races, and that's why the state races are red. Uh, on the uh, Democrat side, you know, we don't we don't focus we don't focus much on the on the uh, national races, and so those go blue. But that's starting to change. Uh huh. Okay. Well, uh, so you're saying that you have actually made a uh, a dent in the growth of government. Correct. Well, perhaps you could serve as an example for the rest of us, Dave. Uh, congratulations. Uh, in that regard. More to come. We'll be back in a moment.
our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. She ascended the throne just after the Second World War. She championed the development of the Commonwealth from a small group of seven countries to a family of 56 nations spanning every continent of the world. We are now a modern, thriving, dynamic nation. The Prime Minister of Britain, Liz Truss, on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and the ascension to power, which will be, by the way, formally taking place this coming day, Friday, in a special ceremony of King Charles III. one 866 jimbo one 866 And here is Tom in Sharon, Pennsylvania. Hi. Good evening, Jim. And um, by the way, happy new month. And, and you were saying the other night about uh, uh, coming up with a new day to offset um, Labor Day. Oh, yes. And I, I was thinking simultaneously over this past couple of weeks, I remember you had, um, uh, I, think, I think you developed a, a National Freedom of Information Day. Wasn't that... I, uh, your, uh, yes, I was the originator of Freedom of Information Day. That is correct. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I think, and, and I was thinking that we need a, uh, f- information of Freedom Day. And I was trying to think what, what day it would be, and I, my first thought was Sunday. But not, then I think it has to be seven days a week and <laughs> 52 weeks out of the year. And that, that leads me to your question <laughs> about are we overdoing uh, this thing with uh, Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth dying. Yeah. And at first I thought we it did, and I couldn't figure out why. And you know, Jim, I just wonder if everybody's sensing that this is the swan song. I mean, the the ties that we as this country have with Great Britain are very quickly being diluted. I mean, English law is being diluted. English culture is being removed. English language uh, is being diluted. I'm looking at uh, a... Uh, pamphlet I got from my uh, prescription provider, and they've got it in 17 languages, uh, plus more if you need it. And they also have the um, uh, complaints to the Health and Human Services Office for civil rights in Spanish, Hawaiian, and Chinese. And I'm thinking, well, why Chinese? I'm just wondering if there's that many Chinese in this country. Uh well, I see what you're saying, although uh, uh, our ties with uh, England, I think, remain uh, as strong as ever. Uh, the now. things that are happening to the English language are happening principally in this country, and while I don't support them, I don't think they have a lot to do with our relationship with Great Britain. But, but Jim, I, I think that th- I, what I'm saying is I think that's quickly changing. Uh, I, I think you're seeing an influx of uh, different cultures here and different holidays. And, uh, you know, it's right now press one for English, two for Spanish. And I wonder how long it's going to be before we get three. Well, of course, different different uh, uh, holidays are, are, are one thing. Uh, clearly, uh, English is the national language of this country, even despite efforts uh, in opposition to that. And the only language that should be taught in our schools is English. If you've come here but are are not that dedicated to being an American that you want to retain your own language, do it on your own time, in your own dime. Tax dollars should not be wasted on such an effort. Efforts have shown that English immersion uh, work 
better than any other approach at teaching young people how to become part of our society. So your point is, is well taken, although I don't know that it has any connection with uh, either Great Britain or the Queen, but uh, it is a problem what you're pointing out. If I could, I was listening to uh, Rudy Giuliani be, uh, being uh, interviewed about a visit he had with uh, Queen Elizabeth, and uh-huh. uh, they both reminisced about the fact that she was mentored by Winston Churchill. Got to oh, tell very you, much Jim, so, yeah. Go ahead. Well, you know, if if drinking hard liquor regularly and abundantly and smoking stogies uh, gets you to 96, then I guess I'm going to have to start. Well, uh, when he made it to 91... Close enough. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> hey, have a good evening, uh, I mean, Jim. Yeah, you too, Tom. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Winston Churchill uh, made it to ninety-one years of age, and yes, he uh, he uh, excessively engaged in uh, both uh, uh, brandy and uh, and cigars. That's very true. Uh, you just never know about things like that. Uh, but who knows? Maybe he would have made it to one hundred and twelve if it hadn't been for. For all the bad habits, we'll just uh, we'll just never know. One eight six six five zero Jimbo is our number. One eight six six five zero five four six two six. It is possible that we have uh, obsessed on the the death of the queen. I don't I don't think so. We certainly have devoted considerable attention to it. But again, as I say, I think as a a role model. For the latter portion of the 20th century and the initial portion of the 21st century, I think she played a very valuable role, and not just limited to to Great Britain. But uh, I think her uh, her dignity and uh, and grace are things that uh, we might all emulate, as uh, uh, we increasingly turn in the direction of uh, ripping society apart. Uh, not every difference automatically means that we should be uh, engaging in such behavior. And yes, Al Grant, uh, speaking to a predominantly conservative audience, that the principal violators of such behavior these days are those on the left who choose to uh, indiscriminately throw about uh, terms like racist and sexist and a host of other terms. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, it is uh, certainly to be hoped that at some point, we are uh, able to to back away from that kind of behavior anytime soon no honestly i don't see it happening anytime soon at all but uh eventually 186650 jimbo 186650546262 as correspondent clayton neville reports that the justice department is appealing a federal judge's decision to appoint a special master to review documents seized from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. The appeal by the DOJ comes just days after Judge Eileen Cannon allowed Trump's legal team to bring in a third party to review whether or not any of the seized documents are protected by privilege. The department argues it's already done a privilege review. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr told Fox News ahead of the appeal he doesn't think Cannon's ruling will hold up. But even if it does, I don't see it fundamentally changing the trajectory. I, in other words, I don't think it changes the ballgame so much as maybe we'll have a rain, uh, rain delay for a couple yeah. of innings. He said the federal government already has the evidence it needs to determine if charges are appropriate. Which is government docu- documents were taken, classified information was taken and not handled appropriately. And, and none of that 
really relates to the content of documents. In the filing, the DOJ wrote that Trump does not and could not assert that he owns or has any interest in possessing classified records. Barr told Fox the appeal process could be a long one. I hope they expedite it, but it could, it could, could take several months to get that straightened out. The Justice Department also asking Cannon to stay her order that stops it from reviewing the classified documents as part of its criminal investigation. I'm Clayton Neville. And also, uh, correspondent John Stolnes reports that uh, former Trump senior advisor Steve Bannon has appeared in court in handcuffs on fraud and corruption charges. They will never shut me up to kill me first. I have not yet begun to fight. Steve Bannon walking to his court appearance in handcuffs after turning himself into authorities in New York, wanted on charges he duped donors to give to a fund that was supposed to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Bannon's lawyer submitted a not guilty plea to charges of money laundering, conspiracy and fraud related to the Build the Wall campaign. Prosecutors say Bannon promised all donations would go to building the wall, but hundreds of thousands of dollars were allegedly sent to third parties as well as to other people. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg saying this was a year-long fundraising scheme. They added more than $15 million from thousands of donors across the country based on false pretenses. As president, Donald Trump pardoned Bannon just before leaving office on similar charges revolving around Build the Wall, but now the city of Manhattan is pursuing criminal charges of their own. I'm John Stolness. Which raises an interesting question. What uh, uh, possible interest does the city of Manhattan, uh, which is, of course, there to uh, enforce uh, laws in uh, New York City, they might start with some of their criminal laws, (laughs) and be worried less about this particular case. This is a federal case uh, and uh, should have remained such. So anyway, we'll talk about that. We'll take a call in regard to this particular story coming up. But the city of Manhattan has uh, no business pursuing this at all. Back with more in a moment. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. And that is Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister of Great Britain. one 866 jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six and to uh, Ron in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Good evening. Good evening, Jim. Uh, I've been following this thing with Steve Bannon. I had some of the reservations that you had, uh, but the guy's dirty. He was working with Trump. Trump, it's a wonder Stormy Daniels didn't get in there somewhere. But I'm well, I, I don't that. know. I mean, just just because he was working with Donald Trump. And because Donald Trump knew Stormy Daniels, I think that's a stretch of a connection. Uh, Again, uh, Bannon, uh, whether or not he engaged in fraud and uh, corruption, he got a federal pardon from President Trump. Uh, And again, I fail to see what the city of Manhattan or the borough of Manhattan of the city of New York has to do with this story. Well, I am not a lawyer, Jim, but the first thing that happens when you go into attorney's office is his whole whole background is nothing but a legal library. 
and I have been personally involved in a fraud case. And I can tell you right now, the word fraud just doesn't mean you use the word loosely. I'll try to give you a quick example. Uh, If you're a resident of New York and you sent some money down there and went across state lines, again, I am not an attorney. Uh, And depending on the times and the dates, uh, the statutes of limitations can be involved. Uh, You've got going across state lines. I'm not the guy prosecuting. But there is evidently enough evidence because when he they brought Bannon into court, he was in handcuffs. Well, that I mean, maybe maybe they're wrong. I mean, again, I, I simply don't know. I mean, if if this was the way that, that such cases were pursued, then our courts would be clogged up with uh, with no end of, of cases that uh, were started out as federal cases. And then we broke them down to 50 different state cases and then uh, several thousand different city cases. Again, I'm. I just fail to see the interest that New York City has when they might think about enforcing their own laws on on criminal behavior. Uh, they might uh, stick to worrying about things that are their definite jurisdiction. That's all I'm saying. I don't know whether whether Steve Bannon did anything wrong or not. I know that he got a federal pardon. No. And uh, to me, that ought to be the end of the discussion. They're his associates. And I'm sorry? Until they bar him from running for public office. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, would you start at the beginning of that? I just didn't hear all you said. Yes, I said uh, what's at play here is Steve Bannon was the chief advisor to the president of the United States at that time, and it was Trump. Thereafter, Trump, you don't, you know that? I know oh, that. I, I, yes, they are. I'm simply saying that there are legitimate ways to go after Donald Trump, and there are illegitimate ways. And like so many that have been chosen by the left, this strikes me as an illegitimate way. They're not even going after Donald Trump. They're going after Steve Bannon. Well, Steve Bannon, as far as I know, has no plans to run for public office. Well, he's, he's hooked up with that... Uh... Uh, January 6th uh, riot at the Capitol and so many other things. And there's well, I mean, but so so the charge him, charge him in that regard. Don't charge him for this. I mean, I mean, the idea that that he's a bad guy, therefore we'll charge him with something. That's about as un-American as you can get. If you you charge him with something you think that he's guilty of and that you can prove in a court of law. All right. uh, Billy in Fort Worth, Texas. Hello. How you doing now, Mr. Jimbo? I'm you just fine. Thank you, Billy. What's on your mind or adjacent I, I to it? I, I've been listening to you, and I believe you're a fair man. But, Mr. Jimbo, you thinking like Mr. Trump. And Mr. Trump said two and two and three. I believe you'll go along with it, and I know you're better. Well, I'll I put it this way, Billy. I, I think that that doesn't uh, hold an ounce of water. Uh, obviously, if Donald Trump says two plus two is three, I would not say that two plus two equals three. Also, if you listen to this program at all, you know that I have been highly critical of Donald Trump. Maybe you don't listen to this program at all, but before you open up your mouth, you might want to be aware of exactly where I stand. I've been highly critical of Donald Trump. hope you're aware of that. Mr. Jim Bohanner, seems like everything Trump does is all right with him. Now, now, Steve Bannon beating them folks out of their money, is that all right? I've already told you that I am talking about this from a legal point of view. One, I don't know whether we cheated anybody out of money, but I know we got a federal pardon. Number two, New York City ought to think about enforcing their own laws against criminals before they go about worrying about something that is a federal case. All right, Billy, thank you very much. 
Bobby in West Tennessee. Hello, Bobby. How you doing, Jimbo? I'm just fine, Bobby. Good evening. Hey, I've got real quick. I've got two things. First off, okay. The queen, the fir- the queen. Forget about her. She's an inbred uh, ingrate. She's uh, a what? She's inbred, man. The whole well, I would not know that she's, quote, inbred or not. And, and secondly, I'm not sure that that's even a valid term. But anyway, okay, we'll forget about the queen. She's an inbred. Uh, good to know, Bob. All right, Pat in Sedona, Arizona. Good evening. Hey, Jim, let's, let's uh, kind of calm these guys down a little bit. Hey, Billy, oh, okay. just calm down, please. Jim, you are so gracious with these people. Uh I want to talk about the Queen. I mean, I'm kind of indifferent like a lot of people because, you know, we're Americans. We're really not used to, to royalty. But I, if, if I didn't say anything, I'd say she was a pretty kind woman, pretty stout. And uh, when her family had its life thrown into the, into the ring, ring of, uh, of everybody seeing what's happening to her son, she and, led to the end life. of uh, she helped lead the fight to end uh, colonialism and end the uh, the colonial aspect of the British Empire. Uh, and again, she had served as an example of grace and uh, of uh, decency in a time when we could all use such a uh, such a role model. So I, uh, I think a lot of of good can be said for the time she was uh, in her uh, position as queen. And I think that. Uh, there's a lot we might learn from her, frankly. Can I say one more thing? Yes, please. Sure. Okay. I th- I think um, you know her seventy years is probably uh, the monarch is going to be a lot different after her, and I. Think it may well it, be. There are those who question whether the monarchy will even survive King Charles. There is a, a yeah. body of opinion in Britain that they should abolish the monarchy. Queen Elizabeth had stated some years ago that if the British people, through their elected representatives, if Parliament asked her to step down, that she would. Now, of course, uh, King Charles, before that Prince Charles, uh, to my knowledge, has never addressed that. My guess is that he probably would step down. Because I I think he's probably going to be honored to be named probably the last king of England, which he well, could maybe be. the last king, or maybe not. I mean, I don't know that uh, he'll be the last king. Yeah, it would be a hell of a book, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I, you know, you know, you look at his two sons, uh, William and Harry. I mm-hmm. don't think because of their mother Diane. I think they would be a totally, totally different type of of uh, of a monarchy for the uh, for England. I think there are going to be like a lot of monarchies out there. You know, you look at all these Scandinavian countries where they have kings and stuff. They're really not really as as important to the people. And I think in England, I think they're going to go quietly into the night. I think the well, uh, royals will be going into the night quietly. Or they're going to be great stewards of uh, respective human rights. Which would be really great. I mean, well, I think that that they, they have generally spoken out in favor of human rights, uh, but uh, again, uh, I don't know of any move, uh, certainly not in the immediate future, to uh, ask uh, King Charles to step down. So, so we'll see. One thing I do note: for a country that was founded in opposition to a King George, 
it's interesting how every county fair in this country has uh, oh a corn silk princess or a, a corn princess or what have you. Uh, we we love uh, uh, fraternal orders in which we wear crowns and carry scepters and the like. Uh, we seem to be awfully in love with the trappings of uh, uh, of monarchy uh, in many ways for a country that was founded on uh, opposition to uh, to a, a monarchy. And look at all the all the various uh, uh, queens and princesses that we crown. Ever thought about that? Yeah, I know that that's pretty good, Jim. You know what? We had such a good talk about Star Trek last night. I got one last thing to tell you. Live well and prosper, my friend. Oh, well, thank you very much, Pat. I do appreciate that. 1-866-50-JIMBO, 1-866-505-4626. And we'll be back with more on the Jimbo Hannon Show in just a moment. I had the opportunity to meet her before she passed, and she was an incredibly gracious and decent woman. And the thoughts and prayers of the American people are with the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth in their grief. President Biden, in remarks at a Democratic National Committee event, saying the U.S. mourns the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, I would dare say that uh, the vast majority of us uh, would concur with that, uh, that particular feeling. One eight six six five zero Jimbo. One eight six six five zero five four six two six. Thomas is uh, traveling uh, near Mobile, Alabama. Hey, Jimbo. Hi. Hey, I enjoy your show. Hey, Thank listen. You. Um, yeah, the uh, the thing with man is really simple. Uh, part of my Trump on a federal case means nothing with a state case. And the reason New York is bringing the state case. It's wire fraud, and this is why all these guys get caught up in this who are running these nefarious schemes, these Ponzi schemes, and these. You're saying wire fraud. Uh, sorry, you were dropping in and out there, uh, uh, Thomas. You're saying that wire fraud opens the door to every passing municipality who feels like they've got nothing better to do with uh, their judicial system? Well, yeah. I mean, you may not agree with the law, but that's that's the way the system works right now. You know. Well, I certainly don't agree with the priority shown by New York City. We we're too busy to worry about uh, uh, maintaining law and order on our streets, but uh, we can go after Steve Bannon. It may be the law, but that doesn't mean that this says much about the city of New York. That's okay. I mean, that's not. I mean, that that may be. I mean, they've everyone's got their own problem, but the. Wire fraud is wire fraud. And two other guys involved in this case have already been found guilty. Hmm. You know, I mean, Bannon's in real trouble on this deal. And scamming money from people, all right, I, I think is just as, as bad as anything else. And most it is people, a bad thing, I would agree. Although, of course, the federal charges have already been covered by a pardon from former President Trump. And whether you agree with President Trump or you agree with the pardon, the pardon was granted. Now, uh, this... Uh, this uh, local application of the law here, uh, how does that get around the federal pardon? Is there some state law that was violated? No, no, it's real simple. Yeah, it's called wire fraud. 
I mean, listen, a federal... Okay, is wire fraud a state, local, or federal law violation? That's all I'm asking. It can be both. And the reason that Bannon's in trouble is because well, all right. the, the case was never brought. The case was never brought. That's why double jeopardy doesn't figure into this. And the fact that... It was, a, the case was never brought, what, at the state level or the... On the federal level. Because the case was never brought, that you can't... So the, the, Trump, the Trump pardon uh, does not apply... Pardons apply before the fact. I'll guarantee you he cannot be charged by a U.S. attorney. He was given a federal pardon. Just as, uh, well, the feds can't get go after him. You're saying that the states can for some reason. No, it's not for some reason. That's the way the law is written. Well, I'm, I'm merely asking which law. Is it a state, a federal, or a local law that says that the, the, the states, or in this case a city, can get involved in something like this? That's all. Um, when you it's say state the state. law, that, that's not sufficient. What kind of law? State, federal, or local? Brought up on state charges. That's correct. That's exactly right. All right? And it can filter down to, 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 to municipalities, if you will, but the federal pardon, the, the pardon only excuses him from being prosecuted in federal court. Not that is correct. Court. That, that is correct. My, my question was why, why he should be charged anyplace else. You're saying that there is a law, that, that, a state law that has been violated here. That's right. And it has to do with wire fraud. Yeah, listen, okay. Well, I mean, real- again, you know, I mean, maybe you're an attorney. I wouldn't know. I, uh, uh, I only knew that uh, it, 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 to me, failed uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to reasonably apply to the concerns of a, uh, a municipality, particularly one with the problems New York City has, uh, to be branching out into other areas. The political judgment on it, if you want. I'm not trying to bring that up. I'm not saying yeah. New York's got this, that, or the other thing. All I'm saying is this. If the only thing you can do is charge people federally, a lot of people are going to get away with crime. Well, that right? depends on what the law says. Now, I would put it this way. If there are two laws, which you say there are, then they can go after him. But, uh, no, I'm not saying that, uh, that everything that exists out there, if, if you can only go after him federally, you can only go after him federally if they've only broken a federal law. It's both. It's a well, you're okay, oh, and that's what you're saying. I got it. I, I, I heard you. I, I was not aware that there was a, a state law here. So while I certainly cannot speak too highly of the priorities of New York City, who are more concerned about Steve Bannon than they are about the thugs who are uh, ruling the streets of Manhattan. But if you say there are two laws, then uh, fair enough. Thank you for your call. one eight six six five zero jimbo William in Westchester, New York. Hello. Jim. Uh, it's been said all day that Elizabeth II was an accidental queen. I would not quite uh, put it that way. She well, would have eventually been the queen anyway. Uh, well, not her, not her, it, 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 only because her uncle chose to abdicate. Right. Ha, even had he lived uh, and, and not abdicate, not abdicated and lived. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not talking about her father a, dying. I'm talking about her uncle abdicating, which uh, passed the monarchy on to her father. The accidental part came from uh, from the the previous king abdicating, and therefore his brother became the monarch, and that was uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, uh, father. 
point here. Had he not abdicated, uh, he lived until the 1960s. The throne would have passed to Elizabeth anyway. By by the time the why why would it have passed to did 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 they did uh, did the the previous king not have any children? No children. It would have passed oh. uh, to his brother's family, which would have meant Elizabeth, who would become queen by uh, in middle age. And as a result, there was a different dynamic because Elizabeth basically was a near child when she became queen in 1952. Instead, okay. she would have become queen at middle age, and there would have been a little bit, bit of a different dynamic in the appreciation of the British people and the world for Elizabeth. Uh, okay, I was not aware that uh, her uncle had, had no children. All right, more to come. Back in just a moment. Born for all of you. She's a great lady. We're so delighted we got to meet her. And that is uh, President Biden addressing uh, the British embassy staff in the nation's capital. Uh, he signed the uh, book of uh, condolences on the death of Queen Elizabeth uh, II. It is certainly safe to say that we will never uh, meet another person quite like her. Uh, that uh, that part of the British monarchy, I think, is uh, is over. Roger in West Arkansas. Hello. Yeah, uh, Jim, good to talk to you. Hey, my question is, uh, do you believe Fauci is a genocidal maniac in the way? <laughs> I think he's a very flawed bureaucrat. No, I don't think he's a genocidal maniac. Margaret in Burlington, Vermont. Good evening. Hey, Jimbo. Uh, I know time's short, so I'll be brief. The uh, bust of Winston Churchill was in the Oval Office until, I believe, Barack Obama and I, I think so. Yes, it was removed, and then uh, President Trump brought it back in. I believe you're to correct. The Oval Office. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Nobody wants to pay attention to it uh, in the administration right now. Uh, yeah, I don't think that uh, Barack Obama was particularly fond of uh, things uh, British in particular or European in general. Uh, but uh, good point, uh, Margaret. Absolutely. All right, uh, that wraps things up here. And uh, uh, Alex Hinton is our engineer, uh, Tom DeLac handling uh, the producer chores tonight. I'm Jim Bohannon, and this is Westwood One. Hey, everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.